So last week, we actually ended, if you were here with us, you joined us online, we ended with a video, and we thought it would be so good to repeat it this morning, just to kind of get our hearts and our minds in the context of how indescribable and incomparable our God is. Jesus did all that. Unbelievable. The unsearchable riches of Christ are unfathomable. He not only created the entirety of the cosmos, but he knit us together, every single one of us, right? Down to the very atoms of ourselves. Every one of us is unique. It's so crazy, right? Everyone has eyes, nose, and a mouth, but like every one of them looks different. It's just incredible to me. I love it. And this entire plan, this, this, this whole design, he, he had it in his mind before the foundations of the world. Our God is a big God. Amen. So well, let's read our scripture for this morning. There's a bit of an overlap from last week because we literally stopped right in the middle of the sentence. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. This is Paul speaking. And he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the past two weeks, if you've joined us, you know that David has been preaching through Paul's understanding of the specific commission that he was given. Paul was on a mission to preach the truth about the very particular mystery that God had revealed to him. Not just that the Gentiles could be saved like everyone else, but that the Gentiles were actually on equal footing with the Jews. Paul wrote that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Nobody saw that coming. But now, because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, there is not a single person on this planet who has any more of an advantage over anyone else. Spiritually, spiritually speaking, everybody has been born dead in their sins, Jews, Gentiles alike, and the only way that we can be made alive or born again is through the mercy, love, and grace of God through Jesus Christ. So Paul explained that it was only by God's grace that he became a minister of this incredible ministry and that it was only by God's power that he was able to be faithful in his calling. And I'm convinced that we can all be deeply encouraged to know that. God never calls us to do anything without also providing His very power that is at work in us and through us to carry it out. And that's why God always gets the glory. We are never the ones who initiate God's work. And you can be sure that we can never accomplish it on our own, in our own energy, our own efforts. We don't ever do things for God. It is always God working through us to accomplish his plans and purposes. And I believe there's another way that we can be encouraged by what Paul writes here in Ephesians. He expressed that he felt utterly unworthy to be the one to do what God had called him to do. 
I mean, he didn't even just feel like he, was, he wasn't a very good apostle. He believed that he was less than the least of all God's people. Anyone else ever feel that way? Have you ever, like Paul, just gone over the litany of reasons that you shouldn't be the one to do whatever it is that God's calling you to do? You can see it all throughout the book of Acts especially, but even in the letters that Paul wrote to the church, he never forgot about his past, how he had blasphemed and persecuted Christ, and how he had hunted down and persecuted Christ's followers. But I want to be clear, it's not that Paul lived his life with debilitating regret and shame as a cloak. It's that in humility, he never forgot the depth of grace and mercy that was given to him, a sinner. The love of God poured into him is what compelled him to take the good news wherever and to whomever he possibly could. Paul's message was if Jesus could rescue and use me, he can rescue and use anybody. He was deeply aware of the fact that if it were not for the grace of God, death and darkness would have swallowed him up. But God, in his lavish grace and abounding love, knowing exactly who Paul was and exactly what Paul would do, he chose him before the foundation of the world. He made him alive in Christ, and he commissioned him to go and make disciples. And the exact same thing is true for us. So Paul was careful to explain exactly what that mystery was that God had called him to. As we've already been reminded through the video this morning, Paul was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, indescribable, incomprehensible, mind-blowing riches of Christ, the incredible news that the endless treasures of God's redemptive glory and grace in Christ were available even to the Gentiles. But there was more. He was also called to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So ultimately, Paul was called to preach the good news to everyone, Jews, Gentiles, and Roman authorities. And he was faithful to his calling. Nobody reading throughout the book of Acts can argue that Paul wasn't all in. He was sold out. In Acts chapter 26, Paul was under house arrest. He was a prisoner in Roman custody. But remember, we learned at the beginning of Ephesians 3 that Paul's perspective about that was rather surprising and, quite frankly, pretty refreshing. As far as he was concerned, he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus, nobody else. Whatever happened to him was up to God, so long as Paul stayed faithful to the calling he received. So if he wasn't free to go about and do whatever he wanted anywhere he wanted, well, then he'd sit and he'd write letters. And I pray that we would have that same kind of resolve and faithfulness. So while in Roman custody, Paul had the opportunity to present his case to King Agrippa. And it's clear that Paul never lost sight of exactly what Jesus had commissioned him to do when he met him that day on the road to Damascus. Jesus' words were etched in Paul's memory. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. 
I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul was called to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, but he couldn't do that. He couldn't bring the light of the hope of salvation to anyone until it had first shown in his heart by the will of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But once it had, once his own eyes had been opened, he surrendered himself to being used as an instrument in God's hand so that others may be brought from darkness to light as well. And once again, that's how it works in our lives. We cannot share with anyone what has not been first revealed to us. But once that mystery has been revealed, once that grace has been given to us, it's never just meant for us. We are to then pour it out to others so that God can then use it in their lives for his purposes too. So as we've already seen in Ephesians, I do that all the time, Ephesians, Ephesians, Paul's message was great news to the Gentiles. I mean, they were brought near by the blood of Christ. Who wouldn't celebrate that, right? But it was a really hard pill for the Jews to swallow. For centuries, God's plan had centered all around the Jews, it seemed, right? They were the special set-apart ones. They were God's chosen people. But Paul who described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he was the cream of the crop, a Jew to the core. He was going around proclaiming a message that was rocking their worlds. You see, there was a piece, a most significant piece, that was totally and intentionally hidden from them. In Paul's words, it was a mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Remember, that mystery was that the Jews and the Gentiles were on a level playing field. What was available to the Jews was the exact same thing available to the Gentiles, all through faith and the shed blood of Christ. The Old Testament prophets didn't even fully know what this would look like because God had chosen to keep it hidden. And it wasn't just that it was hidden in a corner somewhere, right? It was hidden in God himself. That's a pretty secure hiding place. The mystery was completely inaccessible until God decided that it was time to make it known. But why? Why did God choose to keep this mystery hidden for ages in himself? And I'm telling you, I truly don't mean and I don't want to be overly dramatic because this just seems to keep coming up for me, but seriously, (laughs) it's mind-blowing. It really is. Listen to this. This is the reason that Paul gives us as to why God chose to do it this way. God kept the mystery hidden in himself until just the right time so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So did you catch that? Because Paul is not saying here, what we might expect him to say, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known to one another, to unbelievers, and to the world, though all those things are certainly true. What Paul is saying right here 
is that this profound mystery is now revealed through us, the church, to the very real, unseen, spiritual beings all around us. Those are the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places so that they might see the manifold wisdom of God. So I may have just freaked out half the people in the room, right? (laughs) Because this talk of spiritual beings seems a little bit out there. But Scripture is crystal clear. Spiritual beings are very real. God Himself is a spiritual being, and He created them. We're spiritual beings because we've been created in God's image. But the spiritual beings being, (laughs) spiritual beings being referred to here in Ephesians are the angelic kind of spiritual beings. As a matter of fact, we learn in the book of Job that God created angels before he created the physical universe that we see all around us. And some of my favorite verses in scripture, God speaks directly to Job and he describes how the angels were worshiping him as he created the world. Listen to what he says, where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Angels got to watch it all happen. And they, like us, were created to worship and serve the living God. And so the angels, every single one of them, they were created by God to serve and worship him. There were some who turned against him. They aligned themselves with an angel named Lucifer who wanted all of God's glory and power for himself. And so God cast all of those rebellious angels out of heaven. And that is when the unseen spiritual battle happening all around us began. It's a battle that Paul is further going to explain in chapter 6 of Ephesians. This supernatural worldview, in other words, this knowledge that there is a very real, though unseen, spiritual reality all around us, it's evident from Genesis to Revelation. We learn from Scripture that both angels and demons, who that's what we call the fallen angels, they are first very powerful Second, they seem to exist with certain levels of hierarchy and authority among themselves. And third, they have various functions. So those who never stopped bowing before God and worship in awe, they gladly obey Him actually by serving and helping us. Those who opposed God, and they are loyal to Satan or the devil, they are relentless and their pursuit to keep as many of us as they can on that road to destruction that we see up there. All they need to do is keep us mired in and consumed by our sin so that we don't see the wisdom and goodness of God and Christ. All that being said, this is what I want all of us to hear loud and clear this morning. Paul reminded the Colossian church that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers or authorities, all things 
were created through him and for him. There is no one equal to our God. There is no one greater than our God. We need not be afraid of the spiritual battle going on all around us. We don't need to be freaked out about it, but we do need to be aware of it. And again, as I mentioned, Paul is going to tell us in chapter 6 how God has equipped us to stand firm and be victorious in that battle. So that's a really cursory overview, I know, of some really big concepts. But let's get back to our scripture again to consider the wonder of what Paul is saying. Paul was commissioned to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to everyone so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So just think about it. If they've been around since before the creation of the physical universe, and we just learned they were from those verses in Job, can you imagine all that they've seen? Can you imagine them seeing light literally fly out of God's mouth? Can you imagine what it must have looked like or sound like to see him separate land and sky and seas and then make these creatures that were incredible to fill every one of them? Can you imagine the awe and the praise that would have erupted from them as they watched God fashion this incredible, magnificent, and beautiful universe? But then, then he created us. And he made us unlike any other creature, including the angels, and they knew it. We're all together different. He breathed in us his very breath. And he put in us his very image. I have to wonder if the angel's own breath, I don't know if they have breath, I guess they have breath, was taken away when they saw that. And I just, I imagine them like in the garden, like peeking around trees, like just looking, like just mesmerized by Adam and Eve because they were the crowning glory of God's creation. God, you really did outdo yourself. This is very good. I wonder how heartbroken they were as they watched us throw it all away. To turn away from the creator and sustainer of the universe who was so indescribable, so powerful, so incredible. I mean, did the angels wonder if it was all ruined? Did they wonder if it was all for naught? No doubt they heard and they saw God meeting out the, the consequences and pronouncing the curses, as well as promising that one day he would turn it all around again. They couldn't conceive of how. All through the ages, angels and demons have watched the ebb and the flow of the faithfulness of God's people. They've watched things go from bad to worse time and time again. But they also watched God be unbelievably faithful and do things they never dreamed, right? He appeared in bushes that didn't burn up. He parted seas. He delivered his people from seemingly hopeless situations time and time again. They watched him create a people for himself. 
giving them the law, dwelling with them in his temple, making a way for them to be reconciled to him. They watched him steadfastly pursue in love the ones that he made in his image, even though they kept turning away. They kept choosing other gods. In all these things, they and we learn so much about the wisdom of God. But can you imagine them on that night in Bethlehem asking themselves, this is the wisdom of God? Him becoming one of them? And a helpless baby, no less. Can you imagine them watching Jesus grow up to everyday ordinary parents? This is the wisdom of God. What is he doing? What is he doing? Can you imagine what it was like in the heavenly places when Jesus started his actual ministry? No doubt the angels were like, all right, this is getting good. They couldn't contain themselves because we're going to get this done, right? And the demons, no doubt, started scrambling. This is not good. And somebody's got to stop him. And that's what they thought they did that day at Calvary. The wisdom of God. And if we thought the angels were heartbroken on that fateful day in the garden, I can't fathom what they felt that day. They watched their creator hang on trees that he made, murdered by the very ones he came to save. How can this be the wisdom of God? I wonder what it was like in the unseen world all around Jerusalem during the events of the Passover. Were the angels utterly silent while the demons celebrated in gleeful arrogance? I'm telling you what, I would have loved to have seen the tables turned on Sunday morning. The demons losing their minds and the angels no doubt worshiping in a way they never had before. The wisdom of God, right? What else was there to see? What else was there to do? Jesus rising from the dead to secure our salvation surely was the ultimate wisdom of God on display. But apparently, and this feels so wrong to say at first blush, but apparently... Jesus conquering sin and death wasn't the ultimate wisdom of God on display. And that's why these verses are so profound. That's why every one of us should leave this morning in a little bit of shock. I don't know how else to respond to what Paul is saying here. Jesus' life and all that God accomplished in Christ, it was all at least hinted at in the Old Testament. Some of it, most of it, was actually specifically prophesied. But God kept one mystery hidden, the profound beauty and wonder of us, the church. Dividing walls demolished, hostility destroyed, a unity unlike anything that had ever been done or seen before. Since the day of Pentecost to this very day, listen, angels and demons are being schooled 
on the manifold wisdom of God through us as he does what only he can do. Uh, uh, right? The manifold wisdom of God has become one of the most... I love to think about it. It's one of my favorite things now. And I want you to marvel at it in this coming week as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to get, um, we're going to put an image on the screen. I think it's going to be some or most of you. I just don't know how wide they're, oh, it's going to be like all of us, right? So, so this is us, right? We are the church, not the building, we, it's us. And, and look what we can do with it. Isn't that so cool? So you see, like, we're in there. Like, if you look really hard, like, that's us, right? I wanted us to see that, and I wanted to use that because this image just kept coming to me as I read about the manifold wisdom of God. The word translated manifold here means many and varied, having many features and forms wrought in various colors, diversified, intricate, complex, many-sided, God's wisdom and his extraordinary plan of salvation as seen in the new and mysterious creation of the church is a multifaceted, many-colored, culturally diverse, rich, and beautiful community of believers. It's a community unlike anything else in the world. Isn't that beautiful? And isn't it, it's just going to keep getting more beautiful because God has promised, God has promised that he will build his church. And he's going to grow it. He's going to build it by transforming every single one of us more and more into the likeness of Christ. He's going to build it by more and more drawing people to himself, right? He is faithful and he will do it. Church, we are God's kaleidoscope. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, they look at us and they're just, they're blown away. They are blown away. Do you see and understand the importance of the church and God's plans and purposes? Paul wants us to understand the inestimable privilege it is that God has chosen us to be the agents of carrying them out. We don't gather here on Sunday mornings for you to come only if you have something better to do with your time. We're not pouring ourselves into these pillars because we just don't know what else to do. We are God's vehicle for making known the manifold wisdom of who he is, not just on earth, but also to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. We're it, church. If we fail to embrace and celebrate and proclaim this reality that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Jews and Gentiles celebrate the same gospel hope and are united into one body, the church, all for the praise of his glorious grace. If we fail to be all in, just like Paul was, then something is radically wrong. church, this cannot be. We can't just sit on our butts. We can't just engage with the church when it's convenient. It's not just a buffet for you to get to to pick and choose what you want, which parts you like and which ones you don't. Jesus gave up his life so that we could be saved, 
so that we could be reconciled, so that any and every dividing wall that separates us could be destroyed by his peace and his grace in order that through us, the church, his manifold wisdom might be on display. How could we ever be nonchalant about any of this? Would you pray with me? God, it is amazing to me that You know, you've, you've created our brains to, to, to comprehend some incredible things, amazing things. But it is only by your spirit, it is only by your grace that we can even begin to wrap our minds around this. What you have done for us in Christ and how you are using who we are and what you have done to proclaim through the heavenlies your manifold wisdom. God, I, I pray that you would use that truth today to fill us with such awe, with such wonder that we could not help but erupt in praise and fall to our knees in humility, utterly surrendering to whatever it is you want to do in us and whatever it is you want to do through us no matter what it costs. God, thank you for the church. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. Please, Lord, we ask that you would continue to do what only you can do to the praise of Jesus' glorious grace. We ask it in his name. Amen. So our response time this morning is simply going to be for us all to sing together and reflect on, um, or through, through a song. But before we sing it, um, I want you to listen to some of these words. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. If, if the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. If everything exists to lift you high, so will I. If the wind goes where you send it, so will I. If the rocks cry out in silence, so will I. Church, if the rest of creation is doing exactly what it was created to do, if it's doing its part to display the manifold and glorious wisdom of God, how can we not join in? How can we not do our part? You're up there somewhere in that beautiful kaleidoscope of God's manifold wisdom. When we look at the church, we can see God's heart in a billion different ways. All the ways that God saves us broken and precious children. Every one of us has our own story, our own testimonies, right? Our own gifts and unique histories and passions. And God uses it all to show the heavenlies how incredible he is, how magnificent he is blown away by that as the angels and demons are? Is your response the same as Paul's? Do you have his same perspective? Are you all in? Are you in a pillar committed to do no matter what it costs to being part of this community meant to proclaim in the heavenly places just how incredible and just how amazing our God is? If not, then something is radically wrong. 
Don't wait another day. Be who you were called and commissioned to be for the glory of God.